Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and the discussions are much better. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming it at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org, and we have groups meeting in person and online. You can message me if you're interested in that. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Two weeks ago, we talked about chapters 24 and 25. Chapter 24 was the arranged marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. We'll see parallels from that story and today's story. And we also talked about chapter 25, which is the selling of the birthright between Jacob and Esau for a bowl of soup. Then we talked about chapter 27 in last week's show, and the whole family gets together for that adventure. Uh, Jacob and Esau battling over the blessing, Rebekah and Isaac working against each other across purposes. By the end of it, in chapter 28, things seem to be in pretty good shape. Jacob is sent off with a blessing in hand. Esau is upset. Jacob, though, is able to flee, and then he's on his way to pursue a wife and develop in his faith and other ways over the next 20 years. By the way, those previous shows are available in podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the like, so you can check out those two shows or any of the other shows we've done in the past. At this point, we leave Isaac behind, and now we turn to focus on Jacob and his family. Here he's going to work on uh, gaining two wives, and then next week we'll talk about children and property in chapter 30. Then he returns to Canaan in chapter 31 and following. Lord, be with us as we open the scriptures. Help us to understand more about you and ourselves as we read through the narratives that you've given us in the book of Genesis. We thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Last week, we stopped in chapter 28, verse 9. And at that point in the story, Jacob was on his way out of town. He and Rebekah had worked to deceive Isaac in giving the blessing, which should have been Esau's, to Jacob. Esau's angry. Isaac has agreed to send off Jacob to avoid fratricide. Esau wants to kill him. But also, the other big part of this is that Jacob needs to develop in his faith, and he needs to find a wife and then eventually kids so that the faith can be transmitted properly. So we've got a long way to go. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about how Jacob ends up finding wives and how he begins to develop in his faith. So we pick up the text in chapter 28, verses 10 through 13. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Now there's a good bit of compare and contrast with the previous generation. Remember that Abraham's servant was sent off by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac and then ends up being 
Rebekah. What happens here? Well, verse 10, a similar trip, but this time it's Jacob, and he's going by himself, and he's going virtually empty-handed, very different than what Abraham's servant did in chapter 24. Leon Cass observes that Jacob, the self-reliant and clever fellow, will have to manage by his wits alone. Almost from the start, his adventures will teach him the limits of cleverness and self-reliance. Though he owns the birthright he has purchased and the blessing he has stolen, he has nothing to show for either. He has good reason to be perplexed about just what it could mean to be the blessed heir of his father. So everything looks good in a way. He's got the the blessings and the birthright, which are on paper at this point. But in practice, what do you have to show for it? He's got no resources. He's running for his life. It doesn't seem clear at all that all these things that he's fought for are going to result in any sort of fruit. Whether he takes that on positive faith or merely the negative of just running away and we'll see what happens, we're not sure, but we'll watch that as the story unfolds. Verse 11 says he goes to a certain place, and it's not mentioned until verse 19 that this is Bethel, which used to be called Luz, probably to avoid distraction, but it is interesting that the place is not named until later. He has a pretty hard bed and a pillow for a stone, not atypical if you're traveling in these ways at that time. It's also following a long, hard day, so he would have gone 30 to 60 miles from Beersheba of course, to flee Esau. So this tells us both the passion uh, and his fear with respect to Esau, and he runs a long way, but he's also very tired. Falls asleep quickly, I would guess, verse 12. Then we have a dream, a stairway or ladder from heaven to earth with angels going both ways. And then verse 13, God is standing at the top, or it can be translated beside him. Probably resembles the ziggurat tower of chapter 11, verse 4, that we saw in Babel with that early story. And it could be a stairway, could be a ladder. We're not really clear from the translation. Now, in chapter 15, verse 12, God had talked to Abram in his sleep, but this is described as a dream. In the dream, it says he sees God. And of course, not quite sure what that means. You never see God. And so, yes and no, there's some some representation of God, at least in this dream. And as with Rebecca's prophecy, the last time we had something like this back in chapter 25, 23, we and they don't clearly know exactly what this is. It's also interesting that Jacob will later rebuke Joseph for sharing his dream, or at least its interpretation. And it's interesting because he himself has received a vision from the Lord in a similar manner. So when we read Joseph later, It's not in a vacuum, right? It's in the context of Jacob receiving the same sort of communication from God in in this moment. So a lot of things to say here. First, let's wrestle with the timing. Why does it happen then? Well, first, it follows as soon as possible after the acquisition of the blessing from Isaac. So it's both gracious and an immediate confirmation from God. So it's a reiteration of the blessing, and it has far more credibility than just Isaac's words. And remember, Isaac wasn't all that impressive in the last story. Uh, So to hear from God certainly doubles down on the credibility of the blessing. Second, Jacob is a thief, a coward, and a fugitive, but still he gets to experience immediate grace. It's interesting that God wasn't severe with Jacob after the Esau event in the previous narrative. Were lessons being learned anyway? Is God choosing to emphasize grace and a promise with a covenant-keeping God instead of, you know, I told you so, or what were you doing? 
There's none of that here. There's no rebuke. There's no whatever. So it could be that God is relying on the natural consequences, or it could be that he just wants to emphasize grace to allure Jacob into a following relationship with God. A second point to make here is this is the first of two similar heaven-earth experiences for Jacob. Both of them will occur on the road, and both will be before and after pivotal events. Jonathan Sachs observes it is in these transitional travels when he is most open to the unexpected that Jacob is defined. And I think there's application for us as well that in these in-between moments before and after we've engaged in pivotal events, often God will speak to us in some way or another. Third, he's alone and he's away from the standard busyness and it's a matter of special intrigue, right? So it's a great time to get Jacob's attention, both because something amazing and weird has happened, but also he's away from the busyness of life and relationships and all the noise that goes with that. It's also at night, and this is similar to how God reached out in visions to both Abraham and Isaac. Same thing for us as well, right? God's more likely to speak to us again in the quietness of the night rather than the busyness of the day. And then the last point to make here is it's, it's his first night away from Beersheba, He's probably quite apprehensive about the past and the future, what lay behind and what lay ahead. He's away from home, but God's telling him, hey, you're not away from me. He's alone, but not really. I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that he may be at the end of his rope here, desperate, exhausted, vulnerable. Remember, he's a bit of a mama's boy. He's not a man of the field. He's not the rough and rugged Esau. And so this is probably a particular stretch for Jacob, and I think for us, again, the applications are there. It's when we hit rock bottom, or it's when we're desperate, or it's when we cannot fend for ourselves that we reach out to God and we're most likely to hear a word from God. So what would this have meant to Jacob? And in particular, why a ladder or stairway? I think the first thing is that it's attention-getting and mysterious, sort of like the parables of Jesus right, where it just invites you into it. This is something that Jacob's going to think about. It's memorable. He's going to reflect on this the rest of his life. It's a picture in particular of angels going from heaven to earth, and it's a sign that the Lord would be Jacob's God, right, that all this is happening in his proximity. Jacob is on the beginning of his spiritual journey, or his spiritual journey at least in earnest. A ladder and stairway and the back and forth indicate a constant means of connection and an invitation to communication, access, counsel, assistance, and protection. But doing so from across an unbridgeable chasm, right? God's reaching from the heavens to earth to make all this available to Jacob. Again, the amazing grace that's involved here is staggering. Points to a nearness and intimacy with God that would not have been available with the pagan gods and how they were advertised as detached and local. God is all around. God is not the deist passive God. He's the present and active God. He is intimate as well. He wants relationship with us and with Jacob. Now, what does this mean for us? I think we can see it as a picture or a type of prayer, certainly, in our ability to connect with God. It's also a picture of Christ and justification. There's one foot in heaven. There's one foot on earth, speaking to both his divine and earthly nature, and of course, the work of Christ in reconciling heaven to earth as we see it done in a picture here. If so, then this is another indication that Christ is the only means to the Father. It's interesting that John picks this up and describes Christ as a stairway where heaven and earth are joined. That's in John 1, 51. 
Or we think about a verse like John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Beyond justification with God, we could also see this as an avenue for sanctification, the ongoing work and progress and process of walking with God and how it fits into ministry, life in the Spirit, and the like. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There's a picture here of a connection between God and man, not just for justification, but this ongoing relationship that we have to him. So let's think about what this picture offers us, right? We ascend to God and we hearken to his word to learn what to do, and then we descend to the world to do it. Again, the connection between the heavens, where we have relationship with God and his word, and then a picture of the earth and the outpouring of our faithful walk with God. Second, it pictures angels alongside to guide. We're not alone on the ladder, both with respect to divine and earthly help. The angels are on the ladder or stairs, and they're always moving. It's active and dynamic. Hopefully, they're always making progress. 1 Timothy 4.15 talks about progress, not perfection. Paul writes, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And so progress is what is pictured here. A couple of things from C.S. Lewis uh, come to mind for me here, that the little steps, the little things matter. And so in this, we have the spiritual disciplines. We have the idea that every decision we make is a matter of progress one way or another. And it also gets to which direction are you going? Are you going up or are you going down? And again, that's to the ideas that Lewis talks about where progress many times is turning around going the right direction. If we're headed down, so to speak, uh, then turn around and go back up. Uh, that, that constitutes real progress. I think we can also see this as a matter of God's provision and our participation. Francis de Sales comments on sanctification as a process of both effort and patience, both work and dependence on God. Quote, the angels upon Jacob's ladder had wings, yet they flew not, but ascended and descended in order from one step to another. And so there is this sense of progress, steps. It's all by God's grace, right? But we're supposed to engage the process. Patrick Henry Reardon I think gives the final word here when he describes this ladder as an umbilical cord. However we think about it, whether justification or sanctification, we have an umbilical cord, a ladder, a stairway that connects the divine to the human. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 28 and 29 today. In the first segment, we talked about the beginning of Jacob's dream at Bethel, and we pick it up with the blessing that God gives him in verses 13 through 15. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Now, much of 13 and 14 sounds very familiar to us. We've seen this in the promises to Abraham and Isaac. Verse 13 as the land, verse 14 as the descendants, the population, and the general blessing through him to everyone. Speaks to the covenant blessings to Abraham and then to Isaac, and certainly points forward to Jesus as well, who will eventually be a descendant of Jacob. In verse 15, God adds, I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Reminds me of Psalm 128, verse 8. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now, the first thing Jacob would have thought about is not just these are pretty words, but this is a promise I can really use right now with respect to Esau. And just in general, I'm away from home. I'm a homebody. Uh, This is frightening. I'm still worried about my brother coming to chase me down and kill me. This promise of protection would have really meant a lot to Jacob. Borgman notes that it's a what he calls divine tenacity. God saying, I'm going to be with you no matter what. And Jacob will be marked with tenacity as well, but it's going to be no match for God's. Notice also that this is unconditional in contrast to Jacob's very human approach to God in what we'll see shortly. The last series of points to make here relate to how God identifies himself. He's the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac. The Lord is Yahweh. The God of Abraham and Isaac is a reference to Elohim. Now, this is the first time Jacob is addressed by God directly, so that's important. He presumably would have known something of God, maybe a lot, through Isaac and Rebekah. But there's a difference between God speaking to you and doting parents speaking to you. These are both the personal and covenantal names of God. This links also his walk with God to that of his dad and his grandfather, again, speaking to the transmission of the covenant, which is of vital interest. But ultimately, at this point, God's talking about his relationship with Abraham and Isaac and alluding to his relationship with Jacob. It's not well developed at this point. And God's making the point, it's not enough to be Abraham's grandson or Isaac's son. You need a personal relationship with God. And by the way, there's no deceiving that's going to work with God about this relationship. Jacob's been successful with deception, but that's not going to fly with God. Verse 13 opens with the phrase above it in the NIV, but it can also be translated beside him. And so God is both above and beside. And so the ambiguous translation here is actually helpful. Cass says the ambiguity is in a way perfect, for it hints that the Lord can be and is at once both near and far. I like what Frederick Beekner writes about Jacob at this point. He says, the words God spoke in the dream are not the chewing out you might have expected, but something altogether different. It wasn't holy hell that God gave him, but holy heaven, not to mention the marvelous lesson thrown in for good measure. The lesson was, needless to say, that even for a dyed-in-the-wool, double-barreled con artist like Jacob, there are a few things in this world you can't get but can only be given. And one of these things is love in general, and another is the love of God in particular. So God has extended unconditional love and grace. He's signaled his desire for relationship, or at least a deeper relationship with Jacob, what will he do in response? Well, that takes us to verses 16 through 19. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. So the first thing to note is there's both the vision and then the deliberation or reflection on it. Most famously, we see this in the scriptures with the story of Peter in Acts 10 with Cornelius 
and the vision about the Gentiles. The book of Ezekiel has a number of examples of this as well. When we receive a word from God, it's important that we follow that up with deliberation and reflection. Now, what does Jacob say? What does he do? Well, the verbals in verses 16 and 17, God is here and I was unaware. Whatever the dream means, Jacob infers the existence of God. So the first thing here is the subjective evidence for the existence and character of God, and then the need to convert this to a more objective form of evidence in, the, in a changed life. And it's, this is the case with us as well, right? God speaks to us and moves in our lives in these very personal ways, but outsiders can't see that. What they can see is how we changed, how we treat people. And so that subjective evidence has to get translated into something else for it to be useful to the outside world. God's presence is catching Abraham's grandson by surprise. In other words, will he be my God or is he just dad's God? And I think about this with my children, right? I've walked with God. God has blessed me in many ways. I've sensed his presence. He's used me to do various things. His spirit speaks to me, so on and so forth. But what about my children? What about my grandchildren? The bottom line is they're going to have to have the same sort of encounters with God, the same sort of relationship with God or not. I can pass some of that on indirectly, but ultimately it's up to them. Just being, you know, grandson or son of someone who's following someone else, following God in particular, is not enough. In this place is a a strange reference to us. I mean, he's in the middle of nowhere. But for Jacob, this was probably amazing, right? He's a, a local guy. He's a homebody. And he's used to being God being, so to speak, in one place. But here, God seems to be in the middle of nowhere. Back in the day, uh, there would have been deities who were considered local deities. But God here is everywhere. You can think of this like bad cell phone coverage, right? You get into a tunnel or you get to a certain place and God's not here. The phone signal's not here. But no, God is everywhere. He's even here in the middle of nowhere. I think for us, often we treat God as if he's a local God. Well, we'll let him have control into this area, or God speaks to this, that, or the other. We're going to treat this like a cafeteria thing, or a cultural relationship, or a very conditional relationship. In fact, God is everywhere and everything. Verse 17, the greater and holy awe, fear, and humility. And this is a great sign. This is exactly what Jacob needed. Now, we all need this, right? But Jacob has a particular problem here with respect to awe, fear, and humility. So, this is a very good sign. Then we get the action. Verse 18, a consecrated monument with oil. Jacob didn't have much of anything, but he does sacrifice what he has, some of it at least. And it also implies his knowledge of the ritual, right? How did he know that putting oil in a rock was an appropriate move at this point? This is similar to the shrine that Abraham built at Hebron, and Isaac built at Beersheba. So we, again, see the transmission of faith through the generations. Bethel means house of God, Beth-el, and that's changed from the pagan name, Luz. It's the location of one of Abraham's first sacrifices. It was an important center of worship for Israel, but later it'd be a future center for idol worship in the books of Amos and Hosea, for example, and would be renamed Beth-Avon, which means house of wickedness. That takes us to verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now the if then of this passage is fascinating. First of all, God had just promised him these things. So it makes us wonder about Jacob's faith and trust in a God who makes promises and has covenanted with his dad and his granddad. Is he bargaining with God? 
well, that's a big part of his character, at least to this point. Does he think he can bargain and negotiate? Or is he pledging his future to God with a vow, given the promises that God has made? There's lots of ways one can read the passage. Either way, it's conditional on God coming through for him, even though it's promised. It's, Jacob is backing that up with the, the if-then part of this is very conditional. Notice also he's focused on protection, but not the covenant. I think we also have to ask, what happened to the awe of verses 16 and 17? Borgman notes, in the bright of day, he moves from nighttime terrors to skeptical calculation. Jacob stiff arms God. He postpones any relation to the Most High, but offers God a possible partnership. Or as Cass puts it, he's hedging his bets. He will wait and see, and so must we. Now, this is his first acknowledgement of God, which will not be finalized until chapter 33, but I guess we can say at this point that Jacob's journey has begun in earnest. Now, the if-then provisions are particular, right? God's presence is protection, food, clothing, and shelter. Kind of a health-wealth gospel feel to it. Verse 22, the then is what established God's health and tithing. Uh, tithing's pretty impressive here, the walk and the talk. It's a voluntary effort, a public and outward recognition that all comes from God rather than his effort. So that's a good sign. So there's some good stuff here, but also interesting uh, that it's so conditional. All right, a few comments to wrap up here. Notice what's missing. There's no response from God. Now, maybe there's nothing useful to say at this point in this fledgling relationship. So either because it's messy or because God's pleased with the steps of faith here, nothing else needs to be said. In fact, nothing more is going to be said by God to Jacob during his 20 years with Laban. So there's about to be a long silence with respect to God as he works things out in the far country. It's also interesting in the text that Jacob is not directly addressing God. If you go back and look at the pronouns, they're all third person instead of second person, not acting as if God's not even present. It doesn't imply some distance, distance in the relationship. Again, we might say, well, that's kind of troubling, or maybe it's good. Maybe it's that he has an accurate understanding of his limited relationship with God. I like what Kathleen Norris says here. She says, Jacob's theophany, his dream of angels on a stairway to heaven, strikes me as an appealing tale of unmerited grace. Here's a man who has just deceived his father and cheated his brother out of an inheritance, but God's response to finding Jacob vulnerable, sleeping all alone in open country, is not to strike him down for his sins, but to give him a blessing. Jacob's exclamation is one that remains with me, a reminder that God can choose to dwell everywhere and anywhere we go. I suspect that only God and well-loved infants can see this way, but it gives me hope to think that when God gazed on the sleeping Jacob, he looked right through the tough little schemer and saw something good, if only a capacity for awe, for recognizing God and worshiping. That Jacob will worship badly, trying to bargain with God, doesn't seem to matter. God promises to be with him always. Peter denied Jesus, Saul persecuted the early Christians, but God could see the apostles for what they would become. God does not punish Jacob as he lies sleeping because he can see in him Israel, the foundation of a people. God loves to look at us and loves it when we will look back at him. Even when we try to run away from our troubles, God will find us and bless us even when we feel most alone, unsure if we'll survive the night. God will find a way to let us know that he is with us in this place, wherever we are, however far we think we've run. And maybe that's one reason we worship, to respond to grace. All right, let's take a break here on Facebook, like Pure Radio, friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 28 and 29 this week. We finished in the first two segments, Jacob's dream at Bethel. And now we move into chapter 29. 
It's going to be another 20 years before Jacob wrestles with God, and it's going to be on the way home. In between, there's a lot of time with Laban and building a family, and that's the part of the narrative we get to next. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. So after a memorable night, Jacob continues along. He arrives and immediately starts pursuing a wife. That's the population part of his blessing. Verse 2, they meet at a well. That's a common meeting place, often associated with God's blessing. God's presence is only implied in this chapter, as it was in chapter 24, and the pursuit of Rebekah as a wife for Isaac, but there's lots of providence in this encounter. Verses 4 through 6, we have introductions to the shepherds Laban and Rachel. Verse 6, Jacob is told that she is Rachel, Laban's daughter. So this is singular. Remember that chapter 28, verse 2 mentioned plural daughters, so this is one of them. It's interesting that Rachel is with the sheep in verses 6 and 9. Could be that Laban has no sons. Or it could be that Rachel is unusually independent and outgoing. Jacob is excited by a few things here. Probably Rachel, as we'll see in just a minute. He's very fond of Rachel uh, at this early stage, probably by her beauty. And probably the flock of sheep has got his attention as well. Cass says he's no stranger to the love of gain. He may be attracted by the one as by the other, right? So the wealth attached to Rachel is also interesting to Jacob, and it's some aspect of an apparent blessing from God that looks to be coming true. Verses 2, 3, and 8 mention a large stone repeatedly to protect the well from human or animal intruders, from heat, evaporation, or dust, or maybe it's to ensure an equitable distribution. It's a form of monitoring, perhaps, instead of people overusing the resource. That's the economist to me that's interested in that, this part of the, of the uh, text. Provides some nice pictures as well for us, though, right? Spiritual pictures of rolling the stone away, springs of living waters and the like. And then verse 7, Jacob gives advice. Remember that Jacob is a shepherd, and he's implying that they're not doing their job properly, or at least asking some pointed questions. Or maybe he's trying to send them away so he can be alone with Rachel. In any case, let's move on to 9 through 14. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Jacob said to him, "'You are my own flesh and blood.'" Verse 10 is pretty funny. He saw Rachel, and your first thought is, oh, isn't that romantic? And he saw the sheep. What? Huh? Well, he's into money, right? He's seeing both of these. Both of these are in interest to him. Now, verse 10, he's got a feat of vigor and strength, but also daring in front of all these other people, and it's a great act of service and kindness. Maybe he just wants to help, or more likely he's trying to impress Rachel. Rachel. 
It's interesting that Jacob is known for wrestling, and here he's wrestling with a rock. And Jacob is also returning the favor of 40 years earlier when Abraham's servant was treated in the same way by Rebekah. In fact, it's possible this is the exact same well. Now, there are some other similarities here, right? He's following in Mother Rebekah's footsteps of energetic service, but there are differences. There's no mention of prayer. There's no credit to God for the providence. It's seen as a sign from God in chapter 24, but here Jacob initiates. He also doesn't wait for others to help or depend on their local customs, which they had described in verses 1 through 8. Now, there's a lot good here. Jacob is showing strength, diligence. He is willing to show off, it looks like. But the others are in no hurry. Kind of reminds me of a construction crew or a union meeting or something where a bunch of people are standing around saying, ah, well, we can't do that until such and such happens. Jacob just steps in and moves the rock. So it could be that he's especially strong, uh, the adrenaline's flowing or whatever. Uh, Or it could just be the reality of the rock's just not that big, that they were making excuses for why they weren't moving the rock in the first place. Also shows his independence, his zeal, and his ability to stand apart. And first of all, this could just be that he's a man in love, uh, smitten by Rachel. And that's part of what is awesome about Jacob. He's got the energy, the zeal. He cares about the things of God. It's not always well-directed. Nice pun there with well, right? It kind of reminds you of Peter, right? Doing dumb stuff, but ultimately when harnessed, can do great things for God and his kingdom. And we see something similar from Jacob here. He's not the apathetic Esau. He's the man who wants to get things done. It just has to be channeled into what God wants him to do. We know Jacob is capable of discovering and following a new way, but which one is he going to choose? Now we have the kissing of verses 11 and 13. This is a cultural greeting. In verse 11, it is forward, but culturally appropriate. Cass says his boldness with the boulder is matched by his boldness with the woman. In fact, this is the only occasion in the Bible with a man kissing a woman who is neither wife nor mother. Jacob has strong passions. He acts on it, and Rachel allows it. Verse 11, he's weeping. So the range of emotions here, the joy and the relief. Jacob's probably happy to see anybody, particularly family and friendly family, And perhaps he's excited to see God's promises being fulfilled, and so quickly. Verse 13, Laban hurries, so he's equally eager. Maybe he's imagining a profitable sequel to Rebekah and Isaac and the way that played out. But interestingly, Jacob doesn't have the goods, unlike Abraham's servant back in chapter 24. And there will be no mention of food or drink until he probably gets drunk at the wedding feast, which is going to cause all sorts of troubles. Verse 13, the phrasing, all these things, connects back to the events of chapter 24, and the same wording is used there. There may be some hyperbole here, but I'm guessing he needed to explain things much more than Abraham's servant did. Abraham's servant is bringing goods to the table. Jacob's bringing nothing except a story, so he probably did have to say a lot more of all these things. Either way, Laban's words in verse 14 about flesh and blood are interesting and ironic. Yes, we're biologically related, but it's also a reference to character, and they're going to match wits, and Jacob doesn't seem to catch the implicit warning. All right, let's go on through verse 14 into verse 20. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. 
So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So back to verses 14 and 15, Jacob works, and after a month, Laban brings up wages. Is Jacob going to be a kinsman or a servant? Is he an insider or an outsider? Laban's being friendly here, but ultimately he's going to treat him more like an outsider. Jacob can't afford the bride price, and it is often difficult to mix family and business, but that's what Laban is trying to do here. And there's also some good bargaining here. He's doing him a favor by bringing the topic up, but he's also being smart and not offering the other party a price. He's going to let Jacob make the first move. Verse 16, the names, Leah means cow, Rachel means sheep. Also foreshadows Laban's interest in obtaining livestock and wealth. And remember that Rachel had been taking care of the sheep. Cows are more valuable than sheep. And this lines up with the worldly pattern we've talked about before. The older child is valued over the younger child. So cow is greater than sheep, means Leah is greater than Rachel, at least in terms of birth order, but that's about to be reversed. It's also indicative that the girls of that time were often treated like livestock. In that time, it wouldn't be as insulting as it is today, but still not particularly flattering to label your daughters by animals. Verse 17, their appearances are given to us. Rachel is lovely in form and beautiful. Literally, the term here is bright and shining. It's the same combination used to describe Joseph by Potiphar's wife in chapter 39, verse 6. Now, Leah's description is more complex. Rako, the Hebrew word, can be translated as weak, weary, tired, delicate, sensitive, or even attractive as Sarah and Rebecca, although relatively less so than Rachel. The reference to cow we might think of in our times as weight, but that's not the case. Verse 23, there's going to be mistaken identity, and so they couldn't have been that different in terms of physique. The eyes indicated that this was the thing you noticed about Leah, for better or for worse. For the reader, we catch the irony that her eyes are weak, but his eyes and his dad's eyes remember Isaac's troubles. Now, it's rare that biblical characters are described in physical terms, and if so, there's usually a reason. For example, Absalom, David's son, his hair is mentioned, but that later becomes a plot device. So what would that mean here? Borgman argues that it's probably indicating her sensitivity, that she's easily moved to tears, that she's emotionally vulnerable. And we'll see some evidence of that with the children that she bears and her relationship ongoing with Jacob. Cass argues that maybe she's tender or more discerning. On the more discerning, he says, quote, maybe she's a better looker than her better looking sister. Cass also observes that attention is called to Leah's eyes and Rachel's looks. The difference between the invisible soul and the visible surface. Visible beauty is strikingly obvious. At its extreme, it can be blinding. The mention of Leah's eyes forces us to look into her eyes and into what lies behind them and within. But Jacob has eyes only for Rachel. Jacob's eyes are leading him, and generally that's not a good sign in Genesis. We've seen the eyes get people into trouble, and it's going to cause trouble here as well. Notice also that in the text, her beauty is immediately followed by his love. And so eros, the Greek love of erotic love, is born through the eyes. Finally, it's interesting that neither is described as a virgin, as Rebecca had been in chapter 24, verse 16. Either not the case and or it signals that they were less virtuous than Rebecca. Verse 18 tells us about the dowry, seven years of work for Rachel. Jacob had nothing or took nothing with him. Remember that Isaac's dowry came from Abraham's wealth, but Jacob's will come from his own efforts. 
Jacob also doesn't extract an oath or promise here as he did with Esau back in chapter 23 with the birthright. Is he so smitten with Rachel that he doesn't go there, or is it just way too awkward? Cass goes with the former and says love has lowered his guard, not to say stolen his wits. And this is double the typical dowry price. It's a long-term deal, and this is no bowl of soup. He's going to pay a high price to get Rachel. So in a word, what a payment. But verse 20 tells us that it seemed like only a few days. Borgman says he was oblivious to both labor and time, and it's because of the love he had for her in verses 18 and 20. He's weighing the short-run costs and the long-run benefits, and that's important for all of us as we have proper perspective and focus. How do we deal with difficult circumstances and people? Matthew Henry says, love makes long and hard services short and easy. And that's what Jacob has here. It's one of the Bible's most beautiful lines and probably its most romantic. Cass says, no poet has ever spoken better of love's power to inspire devotion, to lighten hardships, and to defy the ordinary course of time. But Cass continues and says, it's an illusion caused by love. And then he asks, could the promise of Rachel's beauty be similarly illusory? Especially in this story about deceivers and deceiving, we should be on our guard not to let our romantic beliefs blind us. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 28 and 29 this week, and in the last segment, we did chapter 29, verses 1 through 20, when Jacob gets to Haran, meets Rachel, falls in love with her, and agrees to work for Laban for seven years. That time has passed, and that sets up verses 21 through 25. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? A few small things here before we get to the guts of the story. Verse 24, we have an introduction to Zilpah, who is Leah's maidservant. Uh, This is a traditional arrangement for people with some wealth. And we'll read more about Zilpah next week as we read about her part in the children of Jacob. Verse 21, at the beginning, Jacob uses the phrase, my wife, which leaves the door open a little bit to the deception. He doesn't specify the name of Rachel. Of course, that should have been understood. But when he uses the vague terminology... Laban takes that as an opportunity to respond in kind. Verse 21 also has Jacob not looking so sharp here, pretty demanding, kind of a Stone Age-ish sort of line, but it is appropriate at some level given what he had been promised. If he was nice and classy in verses 18 and 20, I think we could say that verse 21, it's not so much. Verse 22, the party, that's a big part of the plot here, probably gets him drunk also includes witnesses who may or may not have known about his arrangement with Jacob. Maybe they knew that Laban was messing with him, maybe not, and they're serving as witnesses in case Jacob wants to try to cause trouble. Of course, the big moment is the oops in verses 23 and 25. 23 is the deception, 25 is the execution and the aftermath. How on earth did this happen? You know, We can't imagine it, but you think about the context of marriage in that setting, and some other extenuating circumstances, and then it's fairly easy to pull it off. There's darkness. There's probably a veil. Chapter 24, verse 65, we saw that with Rebecca. Too much partying is probably the top answer here. And there's similarities between the two in terms of voice and body. 
probably. And it was traditional at that time to be silent on the wedding night, so there wouldn't have been much talking, if any. Cass observes that this is a powerfully ironic comment on the love of visible beauty. For where is visible beauty in the dark? He does not know one wife from the other, except superficially. One of the things that makes Song of Solomon so powerful is that Solomon's describing physical matters, but also deeper things. And so his love for uh, the woman in Song of Songs is much more robust. Of course, if you've been following along with us, the parallels and the ironies to chapter 27 are just so rich. Both of these are stories about false identity. And the punchline here is that the trickster deceiver of chapter 27 has here been tricked and deceived. So one thing to say here is that we have some poetic justice. We have maybe even divine retribution through Laban. We have the sins of the fathers and the husbands being revisited on the next generation. So it's a very specific and just punishment if that's the way we look at things. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and he's certainly reaping it here. In fact, the word for deception here is the same that Isaac used with Esau in chapter 27, verse 35. And so the text means for us to make the connection between the two stories. Think about the other parallels here. He had cheated his brother with his mother. Here he's cheated by his mother's brother. He was looking for finances and blessing and population, all part of the covenant with God. And that's exactly what Laban's looking to do here. He's looking to manipulate families, looking to have blessing. In chapter 31, verse 43, he's going to say that all of this is mine, all these kids and grandkids. And he sees all of this as a way to manipulate family and to keep prosperity. So in chapter 27, it's Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob in this dance about blessings and eventually family. But here, it's Laban playing that part for entirely selfish reasons outside of the covenant. Isaac expected the firstborn and got the younger. Jacob expected the younger and gets the elder. The NIV Study Bible says the one who had tried everything to obtain the benefits of the firstborn had now, against his will, received the firstborn. And then there are the parallels to Isaac for Jacob. Uncle Laban takes advantage of his sexual appetite and his blindness. Of course, Isaac had just eating in terms of appetite, but for Jacob, it's a sexual appetite. But again, the, the blindness here, the darkness, the lust, the drinking, uh, parallel what Isaac was going through physically and spiritually back in chapter 24. Burton Vysotsky says, one imagines him groping in the dark like his father Isaac did once, inquiring plaintively as to which sibling he was stroking. Again, this involves at least sight and touch. He's taken in by the voice and the hands, which is a picture of hypocrisy. And so we're back to sort of a Halloween sort of moment. People are dressing up and not who they really portray themselves to be. Now, is Leah active or passive in this deceit? Laban presumably instructed Leah, as Rebecca had with Jacob. Again, the ironies abound. But all are culpable for their participation. Why would she do this? Well, she could be overly compliant, assuming she had a choice in that culture. Maybe she thought she could win his love. Maybe she's battling with her sister. And we can draw the broadest applications here to what happens for every married couple with respect to disappointment, discouragement, despair, despising people, uh, deepening relationships. How do you do that, right? Jacob's desires here are legitimate, but what do you do with it? What do you demand? What do you deny? And we'll see what he does with it going forward. For us, in the midst of disappointments and despair, we give grace and we give thanks in all circumstances. We bear with one another in love. 
we accept responsibility, we do our best, and we praise God. So in our disappointments within marriage, that, that's the way we go. What will Jacob, Leah, and Rachel do with it? We'll see as we continue the story. That takes us to verses 26 through 30. Jacob replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. The first thing to note is that it's interesting that he had defied custom with Esau and Isaac and with Rachel at the well, and here he has the same thing reversed on him. The Life Application Bible observes how natural it is for us to become upset at an injustice done to us while closing our eyes to the injustices we do to others. Again, this is totally appropriate given his way of dealing with those around him. It's being done to him, and he doesn't like it very much. Verse 26, Laban provides a weak explanation. The custom was at best local, and even if it's the case, it should have been mentioned a little bit earlier. Now, it's possible he thought Leah would have been married off by then and saw this as a fallback plan. Perhaps he's playing on Jacob's guilt over doing the same thing to Esau. The reference to the younger sibling here is the same word as used in chapter 25, verse 23, which is translated there as firstborn. Again, the parallels continue. The younger sibling is being made to accept the firstborn daughter. It is not our custom here is literally, it is not done in our place. And it's almost as if he's pointing to what Jacob had done earlier in his place with Esau and Isaac. Now, maybe Laban doesn't mean it, but at least Jacob and the reader still probably catch what's going on here. This emphasis on custom is the very thing that Jacob had violated earlier. Verse 27 gives the new deal seven more years, but he gets Rachel after the wedding week with Leah. So that's a plus. And then verse 28, it's all accepted by Jacob. He moves on with patient endurance, with integrity. Verse 20 has the depth of his love, and he follows Isaac in this. Jacob says little or nothing here. It can't be undone. You do what you got to do. And maybe he's not all that upset to have Leah as long as he gets Rachel. Does he recognize this as a punishment from God and some of his own medicine? We wonder if Jacob has been humbled here at all. Verse 28 has the word finished, which implies a bit of drudgery, at least in English. And verse 28 also has the second wife. Laban here is drawing Jacob into polygamy and he's marrying two sisters. Now, this would later be prohibited in Leviticus 18.18, but there's also the institution of leverate marriage where the brother of a brother who had died was commanded to marry the widow. So there is some provision for marrying sisters, albeit not at the same time. And Laban has put Jacob in a very difficult place, especially in that culture. You could not refuse Rachel, whom he had engaged, or Leah, whom he had married. Verse 29 has the second maidservant, Bilhah, this one for Rachel. Again, we'll read about her part in the childbearing uh, in, in next week's story. Verse 30, he works seven more years, keeping his part of the bargain. Jacob is more clever than dishonest. I think that's an important observation. Uh, the cleverness is important and gets him in trouble, but it's not so much about dishonesty as being clever. I think he viewed this as a minor setback, as momentary troubles, I think for the believer, two verses come quickly to mind here. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
and 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And Jacob, to his credit, seems to get that. He's putting in you know, seven years, it seems like a long time, but in the big scheme of things, it's really not that bad. He views this as a, a minor problem, a momentary setback, something to be worked around and through uh, for his family and for his relationship with God and the covenant that's been arranged. Now, verse 30 is very troubling as we close this out. His love for Rachel is greater than Leah. So we have favoritism here again, just as we saw with the brothers and the parents in the last generation. And again, we have eye problems, right? It's what he sees that is causing the favoritism, and this is troubling. This is the third use of the word love for Jacob. And interestingly, it's going to be three times that he expresses his love for Joseph, including favoritism toward that son because he comes from Rachel. On the one hand, he learned favoritism at home, I guess you could say. So, A lot of times you hope that you would see something unpleasant and would fix it, but a lot of times we see something unpleasant and then we do it ourselves in the next generation. So when there's a cycle of sin, we hope to break it, not to continue it. Jonathan Sachs is helpful here. He says, love is a virtue. Love is the ultimate bond between soul and soul, but without justice, love alone is insufficient even to maintain peace within a family. Love is not enough, for it leaves the less loved feeling unloved and the result is conflict and sometimes tragedy. Without justice, love is blind, and without love, justice is impersonal. Cast talks about different types of love and how they connect to the greater issue of piety. Which wife should he prefer? It turns out Leah would give Israel its holy tribe, the Levites, and its kings, Judah, David, and eventually Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. Going forward in God's economy, why does he prefer Rachel? Is it anything more than beauty? Cass observes, Eros for the beautiful is one thing. Procreation, parenthood, and perpetuation are another. And so, you know, you should be physically attracted to your spouse, but there's bigger things going on here than that. You're physically attracted to many people. So it can't be just beauty. It has to be a focus on the designs and the plans of God within his kingdom. And that includes things like procreation, parenthood, and perpetuation. For the people of the covenant, that's really important as Israel becomes a nation. Now, Jacob's portrait is longer than any other person in Genesis. Richer, more complex. Half of the chapters in the book are devoted to Jacob. Cass says, less heroic and austere than Abraham, more robust and enterprising than Isaac, Jacob strikes us immediately as more recognizable and familiar in many respects, not all that different from ourselves. Yet Jacob, though nearer to us, is no ordinary fellow. He is, first of all, a man of uncommon cunning and cleverness. He is also the most passionate. He displays lust for gain and righteous anger. He enjoys big dreams and suffers great sorrows. Jacob is the first biblical character who clearly falls in love. Jacob is also tenacious and long-suffering. He also has less direct contact with God, and so I think the parallels with us are there as well. Jacob's name can mean follower, but he seems to want to follow no one. Will he follow God? How will God continue to pursue him? And are we willing to follow God in the midst of our circumstances? We'll have more to say about Jacob next week as these two wives and two maidservants turn into 12 kids. Hope you'll join us the next time on The Word Diet. 